Welcome to From the Booth, the podcast sponsored by BYU International Cinema, where we talk about the films playing at the International Cinema. I'm Chip Oscarson, co-director of International Cinema, and I'm joined here today by fellow co-director Mark Yamana. Hey, Mark. Hello. As well as assistant director Marinor Oscarson. Hello, Marinor. Good to be here. Today we'll be discussing the films that were shown at International Cinema from the 12th to the 15th of February. In our discussion of the films, we're going to presume that you've seen them, so we won't be giving any spoiler alerts, but we will be giving time codes in the episode notes if you want to skip around. The films we'll be discussing today include Jojo Rabbit, hit comedy from 2019 by Taika Waititi, about a young boy in World War II Germany whose imaginary friend is none other than Adolf Hitler. Broken Hill Blues, a 2013 film by Swedish director Sofia Norlean. This is part of our Anthropocene Cinema series. The next installment of Sergei Bondarchuk's adaptation of War and Peace, Soviet film from 1966. This is the episode focusing on 1912 and Napoleon's incursion into Russia. And then finally, the documentary about renowned visual artist Banksy, Banksy Does New York, directed by Chris Morkabill from 2014. The big buzz around 250 the Kimball Tower was Jojo Rabbit, without a doubt. We had larger than anticipated crowds. We were turning away, I think, literally hundreds of people. What accounts for the popularity for Jojo Rabbit, do you think? Well, part of it, I think, is that it was it got some Oscar buzz, right? It won, I think, Best Adapted Screenplay. Taika Waititi won that. And so it got some, some noise. And I think it's a film that is more mainstream than I think sometimes. It was given a little bit of an art house treatment, and mm-hmm. it was shown selectively throughout the country. And then... And when I saw it, I thought, this is something that's really going to kind of be a mainstream hit, I think. And it really is, to a certain degree. I mean, I think it really it really pulled audiences in. It's a comedy. It's quirky. It has a little bit of a kind of an interesting take on history. And so I think it all adds up to a, a crazy weekend at International Cinema. Yeah, what do you think, Mariner? Well, okay, I will compare... 250 of the Kimball Tower to the opening scene in Jojo Rabbit. <laughs> this mad hysteria that we, we can see Jojo and Hitler and they're just like yelling and they're so excited about what's coming up. And this little boy is all emotions, right? Well, we haven't seen that much emotion, but there's a big <laughs> crowd. And then it, it the, the music is, is the Beatles and they sing a, a German, one of their songs in German. Yeah. And what was very, the first time I saw it, what was very confusing to me is that we see hysteric crowds, like Mm -hmm. yelling and they're so excited. And that's what we're used to see with the Beatles, right? Right. Right. But it's about Hitler. And we never see him per se. We're behind him. But we see that crowd and that excitement. And that was so well done because that same excitement for entertainment, music, something that brings something yeah. very positive, was present in Germany yeah. for the fur. Yeah. And so that was a very interesting way to, to start the film. But anyway, the Kimball Tower was nice and filled. And I'm sorry for all <laughs> the people capacity. who did not get to see it. It's still playing in the state of Utah. So, yeah. you know, they can still see it. Yeah, he does a good job of showing, in some ways, kind of the, the ridiculousness of the whole Nazi movement to a certain degree, using his satire to kind of show the ways in which it was kind of this popular movement, like, you know, rock stars and using kind of the music in that way. And so... Well, operating on the level of a 10-year-old boy, right? right I right. mean, that Hitler comes off as such a kind of a foppish and comical character here because he's the projection of the 10-year-old boy. Right, right. And... I, I mean, on the one hand, you know, well done that yeah. it kind of shows the absolute ridiculousness of, of, like you're saying, of kind of Nazism and and some of the claims that we're making that seem to be more adolescent than than anything. But 
it's, made, it's supposed to make you feel uncomfortable, so I get that. And yeah. it does make me feel uncomfortable. <laughs> this, I mean, that, that we're talking about really deadly serious topics. Yeah. We're doing it in a comical way. He wants us to see it in a, in a new light. But I just the big question that I came out of it wondering is if the this kind of absurdity of the mundane, right, which is how some people have talked about Watiti's films. He yeah. does a really good job of that. He yeah. brings that to bear here that everything becomes absurd. You know, the Heil Hitlers back and forth, you know, they become comical when you repeat them 15 times. Yeah. But is that a good way for also getting at what Hannah Arendt uh, referred to as the banality of evil? Mm-hmm. That is, that most Nazis... Well, I, I don't want to say most or not most. Many Nazis didn't wake up in the morning trying to be evil people, right. and this kind of going along with the you know with the flow, and th- there's a way that that evil perpetuated itself simply because people you know wouldn't stand up. I mean, this is what our documentary coming up this next week I think is all about, yeah. dealing with Japanese internment. I just wonder if a comedy of the mundane is good at getting at that dimension of it, which is an important dimension of, of why the Holocaust was perpetrated to begin with. Right, right. When in some ways the whole Nazi movement was this kind of incense, the, the evil of the mundane, right? Yeah. About, yeah. There, there's such a fine line that he's walking, and he's aware of it, I think, right, yeah. between comedy and, and tragedy. And I think that he's right in helping us to see that these things aren't far apart from each other. They never are. And some of the the controversy, I think, around this film reminds me a lot of the controversy around the film Life is Beautiful mm. from 1997, which is uh, an Italian film also about the Holocaust, also takes kind of a comedic look at at least part of that of, yeah. of that film. And a lot of people had a lot of trouble with approaching the topic at all that way. Yeah. There's a couple moments in the film where the mother takes Jojo to the town square and he sees the bodies that are hanging. Mm-hmm. And she turns them back around and says, no, you need to look. And I think there's a few moments where it reminds us of the historical reality of it. Uh, Hitler comes off as kind of a goof and it's his projection, but there's a moment at the end, towards the end, where you see the anger and the wrath of the Fuhrer, and it's almost like it's not really his projection of his fantasy anymore, but mm-hmm. the, this, this real kind of movement. So I think he probably sensed that a little bit too, the ser- yeah. that he needs to, and so I think there's a few moments where it does kind of remind us of the gravity of what we're dealing with here a little bit, but it does really, you know, play with both sides in some ways. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it clearly advertises itself as being stylized with the colors. You get these really bold, saturated colors, right? Mm-hmm. So so we know from the very beginning that we are, this is not a documentary realist piece, right? right. I mean, there's nothing that he does that really signals that. So if we're going into it, reading it that way, you know, shame on us for not, you know, kind of picking up on the clues that he's leaving us all along, that this is a, this is a projection, that this is a fantasy. This isn't supposed to be reality in that sense well and i think the the message that i i got from from this film and that i hope a lot of people got that was very obvious to me is that love is based on knowing each other Mm. and and the hatred that that happens in jojo's life is because is is based on his beliefs that are fed by and facts can we say this Mm -hmm. um just total completely creations of the mind. So when this level of lies in life and and blindness is able to be overcome, then we come to uh, relationships that are just healthy. Yeah. Yeah, no, I I think that's exactly right. And this is the genius of it is that the way that puts, you know, these characters together and, uh, and forces them to deal with it. Okay, next let's turn to Broken Hill Blues. This is a film from 2013 by Sofia Norlan. It's set in Kiruna, a town up in northern Sweden, above the Arctic Circle. This is a mining town, and the mine is literally 
underneath the town. It has kind of grown in size, and the, the town is sagging under the weight of these human pressures that are put upon it. There's not a strong plot. There's a, we follow three or four or five <laughs> different kind of uh, teenagers, young people through this film, and we see their lives. We get a taste of what's, of what's going on, but this is not about uh, telling kind of a strong, coherent narrative. It's something else. I, I like to think of it as poetry, right? That this is much more poetic than it is prose. So one of the poems in the film that I got that was that came across very strongly to me is at the end, and we see Daniel take a gun, and we're not sure what's going to happen next, and it's beautiful. He's walking in nature, and he's very small in nature, but nature is overpowering. He's just this little speck, but we can still we, we're still looking for him because we know it's about him. We know he has a gun, so there's tension that's built there, and as we follow him in nature, we even see him lay his head on the rock and sleep. All of a sudden, he's, he's more becoming one with nature. He's eating those, those blueberries, like someone who is starving and only has blueberries to eat is, is eating them, not just like delicately picking them. He's just really ravishingly eating them. So there's this sense of like this boy in nature trying to just be one, maybe. And at some point, he's aiming we don't know what. We, we see the gun. We, we, we're with him, but we don't see what he's aiming at. He shoots. And it's an animal that's been hurt on its side. It's an elk or a reindeer, a, reindeer yeah. a beautiful reindeer. And he's rushing towards the animal and realizes the grandeur of his action. Like that for his survival, he needed to kill in some ways. An animal that is absolutely beautiful and then the sound is just the breath of the animal. And we as well see the eye. I do not know how they film that if, and if they kill the reindeer or not. But what it brought to me is that we can be in nature only through the killing of nature and the destroying of nature. And yet we are responsible and need to do it with this realization that Daniel has. That this life that he took, all of a sudden he, he wants to give it back. So he's taking his sweatshirt off and he's trying to sponge the blood. He's covered in blood himself. And and we, we see a deep regret in him or that's mm -hmm. the way I interpreted it. Then he he's running like a trapped animal or a hunted animal as well through nature. And he's in the water and everything. And there's this scene where he's unconscious on the ground and his t-shirt is stained with the blood of the animal and the children find him and they drag him by the feet. Like you would, you're, you're hunted, you're killed, you're killed if you're a hunter. So that, um, that image really stuck with me, that we are very much the responsible species on the earth for how nature in, um, is treated. Yeah, and I, well, I think that in some ways you could even take that reading a step farther and say that the same thing is the statements being made about the mine itself, right? That the mine is, I mean, on, on the one hand, it's this horrible scar on the land. But at the same time, I think that Norlean doesn't want us just to, to vilify it, but also to recognize that we depend on those things. And the problem is not so much that we use resources, it's that we use resources without thinking about mm -hmm. them, right? That we yeah. use them without thinking, like yeah. you're saying, about how we're connected and how we're dependent. There is no clear line between nature and humanity in this film. And they bleed into each other constantly. And I think that your reading of the situation with Daniel is exactly right, that he's wanting to live a kind of fantasy mm -hmm. as he goes up there and he comes away realizing something pretty fundamental about 
humankind, that we're, we're embedded within these places and that we ourselves have become this force that changed the very environments in which we live, not usually for their, for their better, right? Mm-hmm. The, the children that wander around through this, I think, are really important. You made mention of this with, with Daniel as well, that they, I mean, they kind of represent an innocence. They represent a hope that there's something kind of untainted. But they're, of course, also the generation that's going to be inheriting. And already in the made. system, very much so. Yeah, yeah a system that, that's not too, too charitable to, you know, to a lot of these, you know, these youth that don't seem to have a lot of future except for the mine, right? Mm-hmm. For the, all of these reasons, I see this as a great example of Anthropocene cinema, that is cinema that's interested in exploring the line between the human and the non-human. It's cinema that's not so interested in moralizing. It might kind of point out some of the issues, but it wants to raise awareness rather than give easy pat answers. Humans are not the problem. Uh, so to speak, that they're part of a system and that you get these really beautiful and striking images of of nature and the, the work of humans overlapping and intermingling here, sometimes in stark juxtaposition. But I think of the house, for example, that's being overtaken by the trees. And the, you know, the girl even asked her sister, you know, who will be in the house when I'm gone, right? What what will be here when, when we're gone? That they're in, Norlina is inviting us to think in stretches of time and in scales of time that are not about human stories, but are more geologic, right? That they're they're much broader than that kind of thing. And in that geologic context as well, her filming really put me in those situations and made me think. It made me reflect. I had time to be in that house where nature was growing everywhere. I had time to be with Daniel next to the reindeer taking its last breath and I had time to reflect on my own agency as yeah. as a human on this earth. Yeah, that's right. And the and the film technique, the cinematography doesn't usually tell you what to look at either. So you you find yourself looking around yeah. and you know and trying to, to make this this meaning come out of it. That's right. You take it all in. That's exactly right. I mean, a stark contrast to this kind of filmmaking is actually a war and peace, right? What we have the third installment this week and the Bondershuk's style is for the camera to tell you exactly what to look at. It's a very dynamic camera. It's kind of moving around this space. There's not a lot of plot, I think, in this third installment, 1812. It's all about uh, this, you know, kind of epic battle that is fought outside of Moscow by the clash of the Napoleonic and, and Russian forces. And the we talked a little bit about in our previews, I think, uh, before about some of the techniques that that he uses. I mean, he's inventing, you know, on the fly, all kinds of things. That there's no drone photography, of course, and so he's regularly using uh, cameras attached to cables and things like this. But he wants to give us this panoramic sense of the battlefield, and the the camera has to move through this in a way that they had to invent the technology to do it. And it's really, I think, it's really impressive. Very impressive. He does it also to, I think help drive home the contrast between the individual experience, in this case, the particularly the experience of Pierre, who's wandering around this battlefield. He's a little bit lost. He's not a soldier. Uh, and he finds himself in the middle of it. And the experience of the individual and the collective, like he's constantly kind of going back and forth between these, these two perspectives, I think is, is one of the things that makes this an, an interesting film. Well, the last film for the week was Banksy Does New York. This is a documentary from 2014, all about the work of the street artist Banksy. What did you think, Mark? 
Banks' work is, is interesting, and I think it's interesting because it, it really demands that you look at it in the context that it's produced, that it's kind of displayed. And this film is, of course, about a big scavenger hunt around his work and him kind of announcing where his work will be around the city and having people go around and see it. And yeah, so a work of art every day for 30 days, basically. Something like that, yeah. York, and just yeah. some kind of thing going on every day that people are involved in. And with him, you know, a lot of pop art, it's really, you know, it's, it's the medium, right? It's, you yeah. know, the old adage, the medium is the message. It's, it's not so much, I mean, the work of art itself, but it's really about kind of what surrounds it, the means of, you know, the consumption of it, the, the commodification of it. This is yeah. what he's really kind of drawing attention to. And, and there's a little bit of an activism here as well, where he's drawing attention to the fact of, of kind of inequalities in neighborhoods and the way that, that art kind of provides this way that he realizes his work is a commodity. In the situations in the film, he actually puts some of his works in, in places where are disadvantaged, almost inviting people to kind of consume them and use them to sell. You know, he realizes the value of his works. And so I think that's what's interesting about his work. I mean, you know, people criticize it. They, they say that it's kind of on the nose and it's a little obvious. But I think it. what's interesting is that it really is about how we consume art and, and how we understand it and, and this idea of, of the public artist coming from this kind of graffiti background that he has. Yeah. I think he really has a sense of that, right? The streets yeah. and how it all works together. Well, the thing that I think is interesting about this is how site-specific yeah. his, his artwork is, of course. And so how this film becomes a film about how art depends on this kind of context, right? So it, it, yeah. it asks all these questions about who does art belong to? You know, what's the role of the audience in this? Yeah. You know, when is an artwork complete? Right. And, it, and yeah. it's this kind of ongoing you know, sort of thing. So is a Banksy a Banksy before someone's done a selfie with it, right? <laughs> it's kind of a question that... Or bought asked. it, right? Or it, bought cause it. Because you yeah. have it on the street. Or before it's shredded, or shredded. right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, so it, it is about authorship. It's about the boundaries of mm. art and, 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 how, and the, what the role the consumer plays and the viewer plays in that kind of creation of art, yeah. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. There's another documentary for those who are Banksy interested. Uh, and this was a, a documentary that was wasn't exactly directed by Banksy, but it was kind of produced by Banksy. And it's called Exit Through the Gift Shop. It's a complex documentary, actually, because it's a documentary also about the failure of documentary making and, <laughs> and things like this. But, but Banksy was actually involved in that. This one's quite different. This one is from the outside in that yeah. the, the director, Chris Mukarbel, if I'm saying that correctly, was not at all involved with Banksy. It's just documenting the, you know, the appearance of these works of art. Yeah. And so it focuses, um, consequently, I think, much more on the reception, yeah. which is an interesting angle and take on, on Banksy and something you have to kind of factor in. Yeah. Well, thank you for joining us today on From the Booth. Our podcast is produced by the International Cinema Program at BYU, which is in turn supported by the BYU College of Humanities. We are solely responsible for the opinions and ideas expressed here as they don't necessarily represent any official position adopted by the university or its supporting institutions. As always, we thank our sound engineer, Jojo Hegstrom-Pratt, as well as the staff of the BYU Humanities Resource Center for their help and support. Look for our preview show for the films coming up next week. But until then, we hope to see you in 250 The Kimball Tower. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Mariner. See you next time.